Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How you doing, Dave? I'm great. How about yourself, Matt? How are things in uh, New York? Yeah, we're doing well. We're enjoying a nice kind of Indian summer stretch here. So it was real cold for a couple of days. It was like 40, low 40s when we were waking up and, you know, thinking, do we have to put the heat on in September? But now we're back into the 70s and it's been real pleasant the last several days. So enjoying that. Good. Yeah. Back in California, the air is clearer and uh, the fires have been somewhat contained. So it's, uh, it's much nicer here. Blue sky in California as opposed to what it's been the last three, four weeks. That's, that's great. Well, we spent the last two weeks talking about the key battleground states in the presidential race. And obviously, the big story this week was the Supreme Court opening created by the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so we're going to focus our attention on that. Let's turn right to the headlines. The death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg added additional intensity to our already fraught political season. And so let's, let's take a little bit of a historical perspective as we enter into this. We're going to look at the Supreme Court primarily since Roe versus Wade in January 1973. And there's a variety of reasons for doing that. But one is that it's obvious from any observer perspective that it's that period during which the intensity of confirmation hearings, all the political theater that surrounds Supreme Court nominations has increased. And it's certainly increased, I would say, over that period of time. So this is the 15th Supreme Court opening in those 47 years. And the 10th, that's arisen during a Republican presidency. And it's interesting, if you look back over that period, there has never been a time in all those 47 years where there were fewer than five justices on the court that had been nominated by a Republican president. And in fact, for 34 years, from 1975 until 2009, there were at least seven justices that had been nominated by Republicans and only two by Democratic presidents. And for a period of three years in there, it was eight to one. So Republicans have had the lion's share of the nominations. And yet I think we could say, if you consider the overall trajectory of the court over that period, at least the headline making cases in areas like same-sex marriage or abortion, it hasn't felt like the court's been controlled by conservative Republicans. And of course, before we get any further into this, I think it's, it's worth pausing then to appreciate why it is that there's been so much pressure on Donald Trump versus a candidate now as president to release the names of people that he would consider as possible Supreme Court nominees and why there hasn't been that much pressure on Joe Biden to do the same. There's been Republican pressure demanding that Biden release his list, but progressives don't seem all that concerned about it. There's no liberal elites that are crying out to Biden for, for a list. And the reason for that is that the record of the two parties is somewhat different when it comes to the expectations of their nominations versus the reality that, that follows. I'd say there, Matt, that the, it's pretty clear that the Democratic Party and its leaders pay their voters in hard currency, and that just hasn't been the case with the Republican Party. And uh, therefore, the trust that you see there that uh, Biden need not uh, release a list because they know that you know, it's very clear the type of judges that Biden would appoint if he won the presidency on November 3rd. Yeah, they're, they're not worried that there will be any misses. In fact, I think if you look back through the list, the last Democratic miss from a liberal progressive perspective was probably Byron White, who was nominated by Kennedy back in 62 and who was one of the two dissenting votes actually in Roe in 1973. But of the 10 Republican nominees that have added to the court since Roe, we've got at least three disasters, John Paul Stevens, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter, Senator Day O'Connor, John Roberts, disappointments, I think it's fair to say. Justice Alito, probably call him a win. Thomas and Scalia home runs. And Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, too soon to say. Although there's some concern, I think maybe with both, Gorsuch especially in the most recent term, we'll see how things settle. But that's not a great batting average when you're thinking about the overall performance of Republican presidents making nominations and those nominees following through on what were expected to be strict constitutionalist judicial philosophy. Yeah, it's real difficult 
you know, for the Republican Party, not to um, let them off the hook on, on this front. But when you're always playing defensive, as your understanding of a strict constructional position should be, that you're not uh, going on the offensive and being a legislator, but you're trying to defend against those on the other side who are trying to do that on the court. If you're always playing defense and five of your 10 picks have been misses and they're not playing defense, then the other team's going to score a lot of touchdowns, which has happened over the last uh, 50 years. Um, and I think it also speaks, Matt, to this question that we brought up in the future of conservatism, where fusionism was supposed to work uh, as an alliance between uh, social conservatives and libertarians. But more often than not, um, libertarians have been less likely uh, to embrace a communitarian or a stance that upholds the dignity of human life or some standards of virtue in terms of what norms should be for human beings. Right. And I think we saw that that's, this is one of those areas where that becomes evident, right? Where there's the, the energy for Supreme Court nominations that will actually strictly interpret the Constitution, uphold life, et cetera, that, that's coming from one part of the Republican coalition, but not the whole of it. Whereas Democrats are much more unified on these points. And I think we also have to admit, we're, we're also pushing back against human nature on this. You give somebody a lifetime appointment and you say, what we want you to do is exercise self-restraint. You are a member of the Supreme Court. You have one of nine votes that can strike down a federal law, state law that can do justice as you personally understand it. And we're telling you, don't do that because you believe in Republican self-government, small r Republican self-government. That's not easy. That's not an easy ask. And even if, as you take up the position, you intend to do that, again, we shouldn't be surprised that some stray from that mark as they grow, as it were, in that office. So what you're saying, Matt, is it's easy for justices to think that they're angels uh, in their oversight of government, correct? <laughs> yeah. If only we had angels to govern men. Let's go back to the numbers we started with. We've got five openings that have arisen during Democratic presidencies, but Democrats have only filled four of those openings, which of course brings us to 2016. You recall that Justice Scalia died in February, which was nine months before the presidential election. And a month later, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill the seat. At that time, though, the Republican majority in the Senate chose not to hold hearings on the nomination or a vote, leaving it to be filled by the winner of the 2016 presidential election. Now, when to everyone's surprise, that turned out to be Donald Trump, he nominated Neil Gorsuch on the last day of January 2017, and Gorsuch was confirmed more or less on a party line vote, although there were three Democrats who voted for him, so he won 54 to 45. Now, the first half of this last week was spent mostly exchanging mutual claims of hypocrisy as Senate Republicans, with two exceptions so far, announced their intention to hold hearings and a vote on a, on a nominee if President Trump were to make one. And of course, he plans to make one uh, Saturday. Republicans were said to have reversed their position from 2016 when they were talking about wanting to give the people the chance to decide who would fill the Scalia seat. Now, on the other hand, Democrats who were calling for the confirmation of Garland in 2016, hashtag do your job, are now calling for a delay and demanding that Republicans follow the precedent they claim they set in 2016. Now, we can get into the back and forth in this. We will in a second. But interesting that Justice Ginsburg was actually profiled in the summer of 2016 in the New York Times and was asked if she thought the Senate had an obligation to take up Merrick Garland's nomination. So this is July 2016. She replied, that's their job. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being president in his last year. So all this raises, I think, two questions. Number one, what was the president? What really happened in 2016? What does that have to say about our situation today? And then more broadly, in light of that and the Constitution and all the other moral principles that surround this, what in fact ought to be done? So let's start with the question, what was the precedent? And this is a little complicated because we have both individual and institutional precedents. In other words, we have things that individual senators said, but then we also have the general principle that was announced by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as he framed the issue. So according to McConnell, in the precise terms in which he announced the principle in 2016, 
The issue was you have one party in control of the presidency, another party in control of the Senate, an opening arising in an election year. In that circumstance, he said, if you go back through American history, there'd only been one instance in 1888 when that party that was different from the president's party, but in control of the Senate, had approved a presidential nomination. And so he said, following that precedent, we will not act. We will allow the process of the election to unfold. And whoever is inaugurated in January of 2017 will then make that pick. If you go back through and look at the history, Dan McLaughlin has a great summary of the history on this in National Review this last week. There have been 29 election year Supreme Court vacancies every time the president makes a nomination. So that, that part of it is standard regardless of the control of the Senate. Most cases very promptly. But there's a big difference between what happens if the Senate's controlled by the president's party versus if it's not. So 19 cases where the same party has the presidency in the Senate, 17 of those 19, the vacancy was filled, including three after the president lost re-election. Now, 10 remaining cases where presidency is in one party's control and the Senate in another party's control. In that case, as we've already mentioned, only in 1888 did you have a nominee confirmed before the election. There were two confirmed after the election, and then there was one that was a recess appointment that was eventually approved. So if you say, well, 2016 is a situation where you've got this division between parties, 2020, a situation where you have united parties, and no one had said anything else, then it would be perfectly reasonable for Republicans in 2016, following the pattern of history there, to not act on President Obama's nomination. And in 2020, given the history there, to act on President Trump's nomination. So that's the broad historical precedent. The question is, are the things that were said specifically by Mitch McConnell and other senators, are those additional matters we have to consider as we think about what Republicans should do in 2020 versus what they did in 2016? Well, I don't think you can overemphasize uh, what you just discussed, Matt, and that is the precedent seems to have followed the constitutional precept or principle, which is the president has the power uh, to nominate individuals uh, for the court, uh, and the Senate uh, has uh, the authority to advise and consent and vote upon those appointees. And when you've had a president whose vision of uh, a court appointee was in alignment uh, with the Senate, uh, that individual got through. When that was not the case, uh, that individual did not get through. So that, that seems to be the constitutional principle or precept playing itself out clearly. Yeah. And there's been some talk that 1988 was an exception to this. So um, Lewis Powell resigned from the Supreme Court in the summer of 1987 but his replacement, Anthony Kennedy, wasn't approved until February of 1988, which was obviously an election year. Democrats controlled the Senate. But it's a little bit rich for Democrats to cite this case because the only reason there was an opening available to be filled in February of 1988 was because of the shameful treatment that they gave to Robert Bork, who was Reagan's first nominee in the summer. And of course, not just generically Democrats shamefully treating Bork, but led by Ted Kennedy and Joe Biden, who were probably the two who were most uncivil and unreasonable in their objections to Bork and his judicial philosophy. But let's get back to the question of what Republicans said then versus what they're saying now. So after McConnell announces intention to move forward on any nomination that Trump would propose, Democratic Senate leader Chuck Schumer responded by quoting an op-ed that McConnell had written back in 2016, calling for the people to have the right to weigh in on whom they trust to nominate the next person for a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. And there was a piece written by David French earlier this week for Time Magazine, where he cites several other Republican senators who said similar things. So Lindsey Graham, who's core Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term, and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. Ted Cruz, it's been 80 years since the Supreme Court vacancy was nominated and confirmed. In an election year, there's a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year. 
Marco Rubio, I don't think we should be moving on a nominee in the last year of this president's term. I would say that if it was a Republican president. Now, of course, all three of them are prepared to vote on a Trump nominee. And again, Graham driving the car on this is at least tentatively scheduled hearings to begin on October 12th. Well, I think it shows you, right, that for each of these three, whether it's Graham, Cruz, or Rubio, uh, party interest was more important to them than precedent. And obviously, was front and center because they weren't looking at constitutional precept or, or principle when they were making these remarks. I think that's, that's one of the challenges here, right? How are they held accountable for the inconsistency between what they said then and what they said now and, and the actions that are going to follow from that? Well, I have an idea, Matt. Isn't Lindsey Graham up for election uh, in the next 40 days? So <laughs> he is. Uh, if, if you're upset that he said one thing back in 2016 and is doing another in 2020, then you have the opportunity if you're a voter in the state of South Carolina to vote him out of office. That's the constitutional method remedy that's in place there for anyone who does something that is not in alignment with what you think is right uh, as uh, someone who holds a ballot. All right. So let's then shift to our second question, which is what should be done? And we'll start with the presidential candidates. President Trump, pretty clear what he thinks ought to happen. He's going to make a nomination again as soon as tomorrow. And he wants the vote to take place before the presidential election. He was talking earlier in the week, a variety of reasons for this, but one that he focused on in particular was to have a ninth justice in place in the event that there's disputes that arise around the election itself that you wouldn't want to have a 4-4 possibility. You'd want to have an odd number of justices, a full court, in order to make those decisions. I like his position. I think this is one place where uh, the expectation of Trump was that he was going to follow through with a nominee, um, even if it ruffled uh, feathers uh, in the swamp. Uh, he'll do just that. And he's putting forth uh, this idea, asking uh, people to vote. Uh, and uh, you'll probably have a vote. Uh, whereas I wouldn't trust that, you know, some time ago, if it was a more moderate to liberal Republican holding the office of the president, that he would move forward and, and use his constitutional authority, that he might uh, crumble uh, under the um, influence or pressure uh, created by uh, democratic public opinion. So let's now shift our focus to Joe Biden. He gave a speech last Sunday at the Constitution Center. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said President Trump's nominee to replace Justice Ginsburg will receive a vote in the Senate within an hour of her passing. The exact opposite of what he said when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace Justice Scalia in 2016. At that time, Majority Leader McConnell made up a rule based on the fiction that I somehow believe there should be no nomination to the court in an election year. That's ridiculous. The only rule I've ever followed related to the Supreme Court nomination was the Constitution's obligation for senators to provide their advice and their consent to a president's judicial nominee. So Biden's position today is he's always believed the job of a senator is to provide advice and consent. Now, on the facts of the matter, it's a little bit debatable as to whether, in fact, this is the only position he's ever taken. This is Biden in 1992. It is my view that if a Supreme Court justice resigns tomorrow or within the next several weeks, or resigns at the end of the summer, President Bush should consider following the practice of a majority of his predecessors and not, and not name a nominee until after the November election is completed. The Senate too, Mr. President, must consider how it re would, would respond to a Supreme Court vacancy that would occur in the full throes of an election year. It is my view that if the President goes the way of Presidents Fillmore and Johnson and presses an election year nomination, the Senate Judiciary Committee should seriously consider not scheduling confirmation hearings on the nomination until ever, until after, the political campaign season is over. So that's Biden in 1992, June 25th, 1992. But today he says his position has always been that senators should give their advice and consent to a president's judicial nominee. Okay, so we'll take him at his word on that. And yet, just a few minutes later in the same speech, as he's kind of wrapping up his appeal, he says, that's why I appeal to those few Senate Republicans, the handful who really will decide what happens. Please follow your conscience. Don't vote to confirm anyone nominated under the circumstances President Trump and Senator McConnell have created. Don't go there. Uphold your constitutional duty, your conscience. Let the people speak. Cool the flames that have been engulfing our country. We can't keep rewriting history, scrambling norms, 
ignoring our cherished system of checks and balances. So by the end of the speech, apparently there's a new constitutional duty beyond providing advice and consent that requires senators not to vote on this nomination, and apparently the people should speak. You have to try to find consistency between where he was in 1992, 2016, and now as a candidate for president in the fall of 2020. And the only place that you can see consistency for former Vice President Joe Biden is that at each stage in his political career, he very clearly has had a vision of the Just Society. And he very clearly, with regard to the court, um, has realized that that vision is going to be fulfilled or realized through the court. So he sees the court as being very important uh, to the process of implementing his vision of a just society. So precedent, not important. A constitutional precept, not important. His vision of a just society, very important. And I would say that you see this most clearly um, in 1987. You had already mentioned uh, this, this idea of uh, the borking of a, a nominee. At the time, uh, Biden was um, overseeing the Judiciary Committee for the Bork nomination. And uh, Joe Biden, then Senator, said uh, to Bork, lecturing him, and this is from a great piece today uh, published in The Hill by George Neumeyer called Joe Biden, the Father of Borking. Uh, Biden lectures Bork as follows. Will we retreat from our tradition of progress or will we move forward, continuing to expand and envelop the rights of individuals in a changing world, which is bound to have an impact upon those individuals' sense of who they are and what they can do. So that's what uh, Vice President, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden's after. He wants to expand it. in a nutshell, yeah. Exactly. Uh, in passing on this nomination to the Supreme Court, we must also pass judgment on whether or not your particular philosophy, that which is more restrictive, strict constructionalist, is an appropriate one at this time in history. This is him talking to Bork. Then Bork replied, judges aren't supposed to interpret the law in light of the current political zeitgeist, but according to its original meaning. Quote, if a judge abandons intention as his guide, there's no law available to him, and he begins to legislate a social agenda for the American people. That goes well beyond his legitimate powers. He or she then diminishes liberty instead of enhancing it. The truth is that the judge who looks outside the Constitution always looks inside himself and nowhere else. So what does presidential candidate Joe Biden want? He wants judges who look inside themselves their vision of just society, and they're going to implement a more progressive vision of individual rights. So in 1992, this was the case. In 2016, this was the case. In 2020, this is the case. So um, it's clear what we should be expecting uh, from Joe Biden and from Democrats on the issue of court nominees. All right. So that's where the presidential candidates stand. And there's been an interesting debate among conservatives this week about how to proceed from here. So mentioned David French's piece in Time magazine, where he cites three Republican senators, all of whom had said essentially that there shouldn't be any consideration of nominations in an election year. And that principle stated in those terms would apply as much in 2020 as 2016. So in that same article, he makes the proposal that basically everybody should be held to their word. So President Trump makes his nomination, step one. Number two, Senate Judiciary Committee holds hearings. Democrats demanded that in 2016. French says, all right, give them what they want. They don't get to be inconsistent on that. Have hearings. But he says, then the Senate delays its final vote until after the election, which is what Republicans were arguing for in 2016. And in the meantime, there's some kind of grand compromise with Biden so that he agrees that if they do that, that he won't be in favor of expanding the court or adding Puerto Rico or DC as new states next year or some of these other more extreme proposals that are now being bandied about as, as democratic countermeasures for the approval of a Trump nominee at this stage of his presidency. French's overall argument is that if Republicans proceed with a vote, it will simply be an exercise of raw power in light of what they said in 2016. And that we, broadly speaking, need to lower the temperature in our politics. And this is one way to do that. What do you think, Dave? I think it's a terrible argument. Um, I don't see how in, in following through with the constitutional authority that you have in your office, so you're the president uh, putting a point to you forward, and you said that 29 times that's happened. And in um, giving advice and consent, as the Senate is given constitutional authority, that's not an exercise in raw power. That's an exercise in constitutional authority. 
So this idea that somehow the temperature is going to be lowered if somehow we start, stop fulfilling our constitutional authority, I, I find to be ridiculous. And especially given just what you said about these threats that have been made next year, that somehow the court is going to be packed or we're going to add states that aren't in place. Uh, if, if I'm you know, worried about that scenario, then going into the next 40 days, if I'm part of a Senate campaign in Iowa uh, with Joni Ernst or Steve Daines in Montana or Tom Tillis in North Carolina, I'm relaying that message, that threat that the other party is putting forward and saying, really what's on the line, if you vote for me or you vote for the other person, is the Constitution of the United States. The other party wants a post-constitutional country. Vote for me and I will continue to operate within the powers that have been granted to me and I won't want to change uh, the country so that it and, and give, have it give up on, on the Constitution that's held it together all this time. All right. Well, next we have uh, Yuval Levin, who's responding uh, to French, among others, who are making similar proposals in a piece in National Review and essentially trying to lay out, in his judgment, the moral dilemma that's embedded in all this and trying to sort through it and, and make the best of a bad situation. So I think in his view, nobody's hands are clean. Everybody's 2016 position and 2020 positions are not really consistent. And that both parties, although not to the same degree, have been involved in escalating tensions, pushing constitutional limits and boundaries. And so the question is, how do you proceed in a context like that, where you've got this heightened tension, lots of hypocrisy, what's the best way forward? And so he says, as the piece begins to draw toward a conclusion, we do need an off-ramp from this path. And that would require restraint, which means it would require choosing not to do something you have the power to do. Such restraint is generally up to the party with the power to act. And that means that at this point, at least, it is up to Republicans. Some thoughtful observers have suggested that this is precisely what Republicans should do, while getting the Democrats to commit to some restraint if they win power in November. And that's the French proposal, in essence, among others that are out there similar. It's a serious idea with serious appeal, but it also calls for an extraordinary concession, unlike anything either party has done in this arena before. To treat it as some Democrats have as no concession at all, but the obviously appropriate move in this situation is absurd. In fact, it would be such a lopsided concession as to raise an obvious danger. Republicans are trying to confirm a judge when they have the presidency and Senate majority. Democrats would be trying to pack the court in an unprecedented maneuver to artificially empower their new president and Senate to take control of it. These are hardly equivalent moves. and The trade one for the other would reward extreme threats and so encourage more. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong way forward, only that it comes at great cost, like every other option on the table. This is the essence of the problem for Senate Republicans. There is no simply correct way for them to proceed here. Every available path involves serious costs and legitimacy problems. Now he goes on, and reading the whole piece is well worth your while, but he concludes that the best option would be for Republicans to begin the confirmation process before the election, schedule the hearings, have whatever hearings you can before the election, follow a normal timeline for deliberations, and then the expectation would be you, you would conclude that after the election. If the election goes badly, uh, at that point, they could offer the Democrats a deal like the one that French suggests, say we won't vote on this nomination if you agree X, Y, and Z. Uh, if the Democrats refuse that deal, then you know where they stand, and you proceed, and you probably unify the Republican caucus, which might be fractured if the Republicans lose a number of seats in the Senate. You unite them around approving this nominee as a testimony of, of constitutional fidelity in the face of extreme threats by an incoming Democrat president and Senate, and you push the nomination through. That's, that's the way he lays it out. What do you make of Levin's response to French and that is a framework for moving forward here, Dave. Well, I think Levin, in, in part, you know, gets it right that that French is giving up too much, and and I think he definitely, in in moral terms, gets it right, and that he wants there to be an off ramp from you know, all this um, 
you know, uh, political division and um, faction and all the rest. And where I would disagree, and maybe I'm not disagreeing with them, but where I would say that the better way to have an off-ramp is to have the reestablishment of the Constitution as the law of the land. So the only way to kind of fix what's wrong with American politics that is, is moving towards this uh, direction of a, being a post-constitutional republic is to reinforce that constitutional republic and that there's nothing, I, I, I can't read anything in the Constitution that says that the, um, the time between when a nominee is brought forth uh, and when there is a hearing is X, uh, or the time between those hearings and a vote takes place is X. And the people who wrote the Constitution had a variety of different kind of time standards within that Constitution, but there's no a time requirement when it comes to this process. So move forward, um, uh, do so in a deliberate fashion. Yeah, I think you can get this done uh, before now in the election day, and then you're going to have an election. And if the people of the country don't like what the Republicans have done in terms of putting forth a nominee, voting on that nominee, they'll have the opportunity to vote out those Republicans. They'll have the opportunity to vote out that president. Well, I think you made a great point that there's some immediate accountability for this. When you're talking about having a, a vote on October 29th for the nominee, assuming the timeline is followed as it's being discussed and proposed right now. So that means five days later, you have a presidential election and you will have a third of the Senate, having just gone on the record, not just from the standpoint of voting on the nomination, but the whole process. And if you disapprove of that, just like you're saying, you'll have a third of the Senate will be right there on the ballot, President Trump right there on the ballot. And so there will be plenty of opportunity for immediate political accountability. Let's add a little historical perspective on this. The timeline we're talking about, let's say the nomination is September 26th. That's Saturday. That's when we're expecting the nomination to be announced. Hearings begin October 12th, probably last four days, and the vote's scheduled for October 29th, as I was just saying. So that's 33 days from nomination to final vote, which I think it's fair to say it seems fast. But if you look at the history of those 14 post-row nominations, it's not quite as fast as you might have expected. Of those 14, we're going to throw four out because in the case of Thomas and Kavanaugh, you had two rounds of hearings. So you had hearings, then like a month later, three weeks later, you had more hearings. So obviously stretches out the process. Like we're going to assume we're going to have one round of hearings on this case. If there was a second round, it certainly wouldn't be a final vote before the presidential election. So there's no reason to consider that. Two of the other 12, you were also dealing with a nomination for a new chief justice. And so that stretched the timeline out as well. So we'll throw those ones out. We've got 10 cases left. John Paul Stevens, who's the first post-row nominee confirmed, 19 days from nomination to his confirmation vote. Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the next one, 31 days. Now you go beyond that and it starts to lengthen itself out. And I would say the typical pattern is about two months, two to two and a half months. We've got a few that were nominated around Thanksgiving time. Of course, there's Christmas breaks and you've got summer recesses and such. So you don't always have the Senate continuously meeting during these periods. And so that stretches out the timeline a little bit. But how about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Her nomination was June 22nd, 1993. She was confirmed August 3rd, 42 days. The idea that you could do this in a month or a month and a half is not actually historically unreasonable. And what's interesting is if you look at the timeline a little more closely, you've got really two periods we're talking about. You've got the period from the nomination to the hearings, and then the period from the hearings to the confirmation vote. And that period they're talking about from the hearings to the confirmation vote, they're talking about 17 days, October 12th to October 29th. That is as normal as could be. We've had 17 in the past. We've had 14, 18, 19. Right? Though that, that two and a half weeks is, is very, very common as the period from when you finish or you start the hearings to when you had the final vote. So the only thing that's being truncated, if anything's being truncated, is the period from the nomination to the beginning of the hearings, what you might call the kind of research period where you're getting ready for those hearings. Now, I think especially if the nominee is Amy Coney Barrett, which is the expectation at this point. Three years ago, she was confirmed by almost the same Senate Judiciary Committee for her current position on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So there's, there's five senators of the 22 that are on the committee today that weren't part of those hearings, but 17 of them were there then and they're there now. So they've already 
discussed matters with her. They had a full day of hearings back in 2017. Meanwhile, President Trump added her to his list of potential nominees almost three years ago, November of 2017. So broadly speaking, any Democrat, any Republican on the Judiciary Committee, any, any nonprofit who cares about Supreme Court nominations, you've had three years notice that Amy Coney Barrett could very well be a Supreme Court nominee by President Trump. Furthermore, when Kavanaugh was nominated two, two summers ago to fill Anthony Kennedy's seat, she was one of the six frontrunners identified in a New York Times article and probably discussed as a person on the short list for President Trump at that point. So of the 25 that were on his Trump's long list, she was one of the top six, was the consensus view in the summer of 2018. So I think it's fair to say that if in the normal situation, you need maybe a month to sort through the record, find witnesses and all the rest for an upcoming nominee, maybe a month and a half, to do it in less time in this case should not be difficult given the fact that we've only got three years of new record, her time on the Court of Appeals, all the rest has already been vetted by the Senate Judiciary Committee. You've got her prominence on this list, all opportunity to do whatever research you want to do over the last three years. And again, for the last two years, a recognition that she could very well be the nominee the next time an opening arises. Matt, I'm going to I don't like to do this because I'm cautious as a person in general, but I'm going to go on a far, far limb here between now and when that committee votes or now when the full Senate votes. I've got this feeling that no amount of research on a candidate is going to uh, prompt uh, a Democratic member of the Senate who believes in a living constitution to vote for a strict constructionalist judge or vice versa. Do Do you think I'm a crazy bet there. Powerball, right? <laughs> a Powerball proportions. I think you're probably right. I think the timeline is aggressive, but it's not unreasonable or unprecedented. And filling the seat is consistent with both the constitutional framework of our system, the history of Supreme Court nominations. I think especially if Barrett's the nominee, it, it really should be full steam ahead. And, and no one needs to apologize for that. Now, there's, there's one more dimension of this I think it's worth talking about that we're going to develop in our required reading. And, and we've kind of been hinting at this all along. But there's an important question of judicial philosophy here. In a lot of areas of politics, you could say, well, Republican, Democrat, the choice between them is, is essentially prudential. It's a matter of judgment uh, to be informed by experience, sound reasoning from human nature, our best understanding of the moral dimensions of the policy that's in view, what's the proper size of the military, what are the proper terms of diplomatic relations with other nations, welfare policy, tax policy, we could, we could go on. Those sorts of issues don't normally generate constitutional questions, and even when they do, they don't raise fundamental questions about our constitutional system. But this isn't true when it comes to Supreme Court nominations. Here we have one party that at least in terms of its platform and its rhetoric, is committed to appointing judges who are willing to be judges, exercising judgment rather than will, and the other party is not. There is no constitutional equivalency between a typical Democratic judge who is not bound by the text of the Constitution as originally understood or the moral framework that it presupposes and a typical Republican judge who is bound by those things. And so with that in mind, Dave, let's, let's turn to our required reading and let's, let's dig in this a little bit more deeply. What have you got for us today? Well, I have two Federalist papers. I want to spend uh, most of my time going through Federalist 78, which talks about the role uh, of judges and their duty to follow the people's constitution. And then the second Federalist paper that I want to reference in passing is, is Federalist 51 that talks about the different branches of government and, and what it means to uphold the constitutional responsibility of, of one's office. So Federal 78 says the following, whoever attentively considers the different departments of power must perceive that in a government in which they are separated from each other, the judiciary from the nature of its functions will always be the least dangerous to the political rights of the constitution because it will be least in a capacity to annoy or injure them. So here, uh, Hamilton in in Federal 78, uh, making the case uh, for uh, the judicial branch and and how it will operate, suggests that the court, unlike the executive, which holds the sword, or the legislative branch, which holds the purse, 
has no ability to really take an active resolution whatsoever. It lacks uh, force and will, and it has merely judgment. So the proper task of the Supreme Court, according to Hamilton and according to the Constitution, is its judgment. It does not prescribe the rules by which the duties and rights of every citizen are to be regulated. It secures those rights as already established within the Constitution itself. So it's very, very difficult. And, and I remember back when I was involved in politics in New Hampshire 20 years ago, by the time of the late 20th century, given how much judicial activism there has been, many members of American society, many of the voting electorate somehow believe that the court has an authority that is greater than the Constitution itself. But here Hamilton is arguing that, that that's not the case, that, that the, the master is the people who have ratified or will ratify the Constitution, and the court is thereafter present to secure that which the people have ratified. Uh, so the, the court acts as a negation against the other branches that may have taken that original authority granted to the Constitution and skewed it in one direction or another. You see anything different in the beginning of Federalist 78, Matt? No, I think this is really important point because there's been the thought for the last century that the Constitution says what the Supreme Court says it says. And we recall the, the battles we've been through on this point over the years, say, no, that's not actually the case. The Constitution has meaning independent of the opinion of a majority of nine justices on the Supreme Court. How do you discern that meaning? You go back to the public meeting at the time it was ratified. What did the people who actually make the law understand themselves to be doing? And, and that's why it's not just a, a mere choice to, well, I believe in original intent and you believe in a living constitution. I like higher taxes, you like lower taxes. This is not the same thing because one of these principles assumes that the people are actually governing themselves and one denies that. One allows the people to establish the framework for their government and requires all officers under that government to conform to that framework. And one assumes that at least one part of that framework is actually above the framework and can make judgments that bind everybody, including the citizens, under whose authority, supposedly, they have their office. Yeah, so then the objection is, well, have you created an unrepublican constitution? And Herr Hamilton says, no. Though I trust the friends of the proposed constitution will never concur with its enemies in questioning that the fundamental principle of Republican government, which admits the right of the people to alter or abolish the established constitution whenever they find it inconsistent with their happiness. Yet it is not to be inferred from this principle that the representatives of the people, whenever a momentary inclination happens to lay hold of a majority of their constituents, incompatible with the provisions in the existing constitution, would on that account be justifiable, justifiable in a violation of those provisions, or that the courts would be under a greater obligation to connive at infractions in this shape than when they have proceeded wholly from the cabals of the representative body. Until the people have, by some solemn and authoritative act, annulled or changed the established form, it is binding upon themselves collectively as well as individually, and no presumption or even knowledge of their sentiments can warrant their representatives in a departure from it prior to such an act. So this is a safeguard against legislative activism. It's a safeguard against executive activism. And likewise, it should be a safeguard against judicial activism because clearly it stated that if the people want to change their constitution, they are given a constitutional means right, to alter or abolish the established constitution. But those means are not judicial means. That agent, that moral agent to change the meaning of the constitution should not be a judge. In fact, the judge is the greatest defender of that constitution, not the individual that is working to undermine it. Yeah, it's one of the great mistakes of recent courts where they have essentially on issues like same-sex marriage, looked at the trajectory of public opinion. Well, this many states have approved of it, and it seems like there's momentum in this direction. Therefore, we're going to make everybody do it. Well, that's, that's not how it works. It's not about any change in public opinion. It's about the Constitution itself. That 
is binding upon the people as well as the government. So I, I did mention, Matt, that I also wanted to reference Federalist Paper 51. Uh, 51 is the last of a series of, of papers written by James Madison uh, that really deal primarily with the idea of one branch of government becoming tyrannical uh, over uh, the other uh, departments. And uh, Madison writes in 51 when he gives the expedient and, and, and what's within the constitutional system that hopefully uh, will, will prevent this, that um, the, the great uh, provision uh, for defense must in this, as in all other cases, be made commensurate to the danger of attack. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. So what does that mean? That if you're a member, if you're the member of the executive branch, if you're the president, your interests must be connected with the constitutional rights of the executive department. If you're in the legislative branch, that likewise must be the case. And if you're a judge, your interests must be connected with the constitutional rights of the court. What has happened instead uh, in the partisan age in which we live in? Well, the interests of judges are not connected with the constitutional rights of the judiciary. They're connected with the partisan sway of one's vision of the just society. Hence, when you have a choice to make between reining yourself in and preventing yourself from being a legislator or not, you choose to be a legislator because you're so drawn to your vision of a just society that you want to implement. And as you mentioned earlier, you now have one of nine votes to be able to implement that vision of a just society. So Madison's remedy uh, has, been, uh, has been overwhelmed uh, by uh, the partisan nature of American politics, whereby partisans set aside the Constitution and just put forth their ideas and, and forget what the Constitution says with regard to their powers. And so what should happen in that case, if judges are acting beyond their powers, and they have done this repeatedly over the course of the whole history of the court, but certainly with increasing frequency, I think it's fair to say in the last half century, is that the Congress, which has oversight over the court, should act. There should be hearings. There should be protections perhaps impeachments and removals of justices that are violating their constitutional responsibility. Why doesn't that happen? Well, because the ambition of the senators is not directed to protecting their prerogative as senators, but in the exact same way you're describing, Dave, in advancing a certain agenda. They're making common cause. There's, you might say, a conspiracy against the Constitution among people that are ideologically sympathetic with one another across the branches. They're not trying to rein each other in. They're trying to think about the best branch at the best moment to advance the cause the furthest. And so rather than the institutional rivalries where ambition counteracts ambition, as Madison is proposing in Federalist 51, we have ideological agreement that then leads senators to root the Supreme Court on when they take on legislative matters, especially when it keeps those senators from having to cast a vote that they wouldn't really want to vote. Uh, that's, what really I, want to that's what I was just going to say, Matt, that the, the interest of uh, so many senators and, and, and congressmen today seem to be connected with getting reelected. So if they can allow the courts to make the hard decisions for them, all the better. So the uh, play of cowardice in, in this game. Right. Wrong ambition, right? <laughs> Rather than the ambition to maintain your institutional prerogatives and ultimately protect the Constitution, your ambition is to maintain your individual prerogatives, the emoluments of office and all the nice things that go along with being Senator so-and-so, and thereby to dodge the tough votes. If the Supreme Court will take those off your plate, all the better. I just add one more point on this before we wrap up our discussion of the role of the Supreme Court. One of the things that's embedded in Federalist 78 and in some of the passages that you read and elsewhere in that essay is, again, this absolute necessity that judges act in accordance with the original meaning of the text. If they're actually going to do their job as judges, they have to be wedded to that. That's Republican theory. It's, it's, this isn't just a, a theory of constitutional interpretation. This is what it means for a community to be self-governing. The laws made by any given group, whether that's a law of a constitution or a particular law that's made by a legislative body, have to be interpreted in light of the meaning as it was understood at the time that it was approved. Otherwise, 
we no longer have self-government. Otherwise, the act of establishing that constitution or making that law is a meaningless act. All you're doing is opening up a vessel into which later generations, later justices, later legislators can pour whatever they want in. That's not the nature of self-government. The fact that progressivism has taken us in a different direction is perhaps progressivism's most fundamental challenge to true self-government. And that's why it's absolutely essential that Republicans, every chance they get, make the case for their judicial philosophy, for the Constitution's judicial philosophy, for Republican small r judicial philosophy. And that's why I thought in 2016 it was a mistake not to have hearings on Merrick Garland. At that point, I argued they should have had the hearings have the hearings, expose the judicial philosophy, make the case against it, and begin to build a broader coalition in favor of self-government under the Constitution. Every hearing is an opportunity to show the value of those principles and the shipwreck alternative that follows if you abandon them. Yeah, I think unfortunately they, they were afraid to do that, and, and hence they um, invented uh, some precedent that hadn't existed up until that time, and, and then uh, they're being caught up on, on those words uh, today, or maybe caught up on those words. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Matt, completely. That nomination should have gone forward. Uh, he should have been able to uh, have a fair hearing, and they should have made it, uh, they should have um, pursued a vote uh, on that nomination. Now it's time to open the grade book. And so next week is the first presidential debate moderated by Chris Wallace. Hard to believe we're that far along in the campaign, but here we are. Uh, don't think there'll be shorter things to talk about. Uh, in fact, they've just announced this last week the six topics that are going to be the focus of six 15-minute segments in the 90-minute debate. So the record of Trump and Biden is number one, coronavirus number two, Supreme Court number three, race and violence in cities number four, election integrity number five, and the economy is number six. Now we're going to use our grade book to grade the performances of the debaters in each of the next four debates, next four weeks, but we want to be fair, right? We're, we're good professors. We want to be fair to our students. We want to give them a rubric. We want to give them some guidelines as to what's it going to take to earn an A or a C or an F. So we're going to do this for Biden. We'll do it for Trump. Lay it out a little bit in advance. So when they're listening, they have a chance to meet the mark and earn an A, if possible, on this first debate. All right, Dave. So Give us your rubric for an A for Joe Biden. I think in these, all, an A performance is always uh, coming off presidential. So if, if Joe Biden uh, comes off presidential, he's reasonable, he's civil, he shakes uh, President Trump's hands, he's, he shows respect for the office of the presidency, and then is able to kind of maneuver uh, forward in each of these six conversations, the, the democratic position on the issue without um, it coming off as too hyper-progressive, uh, then I think that uh, he would have had an A performance on Tuesday evening. Yeah, I think, I think Wallace is going to come after both of them hard. I think that's kind of how he prides himself as a guy who asks tough questions. So I think, you know, Biden has not been ask tough questions very often. This is true of every Democrat, right? They're not uh, asked tough questions very often. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how he responds when Wallace asks him a question that's not an easy one. If Biden gets a tough question on Hunter Biden or something related to his record that's personal for him, he's got a tendency to get mad, a tendency to fight back, come up with weird insults. He's got to really restrain that. And so it's coming for him. If he's able to show restraint in that situation, I think that's a key part of, of pulling off an A. All right, how about a C, Dave? What, what, what's a C performance like for Biden look like? A C would be a, a level of um, incompetence uh, in speech, uh, would be just what you said, uh, being caught off guard, uh, or uh, in the case of uh, progressive policy, misstating it or maybe overstating it um, in, in a way that um, – could, could catch up with him thereafter. So um, he can't afford to have uh, too many of those moments over the 90 minutes. Uh, he has two or three of those and, and he's able to get back up the steam. That's a C. Uh, but I, I think he's got to be careful to keep uh, that number of stumbles down. Yeah, he doesn't want to have any obvious gaffes, right? No headlines, no remarks that kind of lead the news the next day or, or that the average voter who's watching is going to say, what? What's that all about? I mean, I think 
I think you know, the audience here is the average voter. We, we know that the, the media is going to spin it one way or another, but, but what's, how's the average voter going to respond to these two candidates? Okay, how about an F for Biden? Yeah, I mean, I think just one flub up after another. I think you, you nailed it earlier. Uh, his tendency to get upset or mad. Uh, if he comes off looking uh, bitter, uh, you know, off his rocker, uh, in any way, uh, then, and that continues throughout the whole 90 minutes, that, that would be a nightmare performance, an F performance uh, for Joe Biden. So uh, do not, I repeat, do not try to uh, uh, get down and, and do some push-ups to show just how physically <laughs> fit you are against the president. No, nothing like that. Yeah, no, no gimmicks, right? Definitely avoid the gimmicks. I still remember poor Bob Dole at the end of one of the debates in 96, trying to tell people, to go to his website. And of course, in 1996, if you were 75 years old or whatever Dole was, website was not really the language that you spoke. And so he's there, HTTP colon slash slash WW. <laughs> it was brutal. Um, apparently, the handlers said, hey, you got to be hip. We're going to do websites, but did not come off. All right. How about, how about Trump? What's, a, what's an A debate performance look like for President Trump? He has to stay on point. He has a lot of, I think, uh, good points to make uh, about his record, about his vision uh, for the country. I mean, we go back to our RNC episode uh, that was a very cohesive, disciplined Republican message as to as the Republican Party is a party of opportunity, uh, the party of equality, and so on. If he's able over 90 minutes to look presidential in putting forth that vision that was there in the RNC, then he receives an A for the evening. Yeah, I think he's got to have some verbal self-control. You know, he's, he's going to have to do his thing. He's going to have to be Trump. And you know, if he's able to bait Biden into committing himself on some of his progressive policies more than maybe would be wise for Biden. I mean, the, Biden's challenge is a lot of his ideas don't pull well. And so if he can be Joe Biden, regular guy, he can win the election. But if he's Joe Biden who's the front man for a progressive agenda, that's, that's not a winning combination. So if Trump can get him into that mode where he gets some of those things on the record, and I think just in general, look, in a, in a time where there's so much uncertainty, the question is, who's the safer choice? You, you know the dangers of Trump, but could the dangers of Biden be greater? How about a C performance for Trump? He loses just that measure, that, that measure of what it's meant, uh, what, what it means to be a president, uh, what it means to advocate certain ideas. Uh, and instead, um, he begins to uh, become less measured uh, in his uh, attacks on Biden-Harris, uh, less measured uh, on um, his attacks, which you know will come on, on Wallace, uh, less measured in his attacks on all those uh, who aren't in favor of his policies. So as he begins to lose measure, he'll begin to look more average and be more deserving of that grade of a C. Yeah, one of his faults is he's overconfident when it comes to his own knowledge of things. And so he doesn't prepare for debates because he doesn't need to prepare. If he doesn't have at least some message discipline, some points that he's able to communicate effectively, some sentences that he starts at point A and, and gets all the way to point Z, then he's going to have a difficult time connecting with the audience. There's, there's some that are just going to respond to the personality, but he's got to be able to persuade some that his presidency is worth continuing. All right, how about an F? What's an F for President Trump look like? Yeah, I think that uh, Joe Biden's going to try to make the debate about Donald Trump. Chris Wallace is going to try to make the debate about Donald Trump. If Donald Trump likewise makes the debate about Donald Trump and is impossible um, to, to watch, then he's kind of set himself up for that failure that he would receive. So, um, so his, to say it differently, his bar is set much higher if he plays into this idea that he is the Messiah, the Savior, uh, and, and then acts anything like a Messiah, a Savior um, during the debate itself. So I, I think going back to this idea of being measured, um, uh, having a, a vision uh, that he's tried to uh, put forward as president, that, but that is the will of the majority of the American people, uh, defending uh, the will of the majority of the American people against those ideas that would undercut 
what most of us would want. Uh, if, if he goes in a, a, a direction um, where he's off the rails uh, and is shown to be off the rails, and that's an F because I think it's going to turn off uh, that 5% of the vote, uh, voting electorate who still hasn't made up their mind. All right. Our last segment, as always, is the Tocqueville's crystal ball. We had five more sports picks, five sports, five picks last week. Once again, it was a bit of an uneven result here. I got four right out of five. Dave, one out of five. So to date, I am eight and two. Dave, you're two and eight. You were about a yard from glory with the Patriots there uh, against Seattle. That was tough. That's a great game. Yeah, I actually, uh, it was the most enjoyable football game I think I've watched in, in quite some time. So it was uh, good to see, especially without fans. But it almost felt at the end there that because uh, it was just down to the wire that uh, you didn't really worry about the fans anymore. So yeah, yeah. it's a bad week, but, but that was a good game. So this week we've got five again. We've got NFL. We're going to go college football and then NBA, NHL, MLB. Our NFL game this week is Packers at Saints. Sunday night. A couple of old quarterbacks. Saints are three-point favorites at home. Aaron Rodgers on the road at, coming off a big win last week. What do you think, Dave? Oh, I, th- I think people who have called Aaron Rodgers an old quarterback have really lit a fire beneath him. So <laughs> uh, I think uh, I'm going to take the Packers uh, in this game. I, I think that uh, they are a very, very strong team. Uh, probably, uh, I, I would say they're my favorite right now uh, to advance from the NFC to the Super Bowl. I, I didn't say that earlier, but they've they've looked great up until this point. So, great uh, great passing game. Uh, Aaron Jones is the running back. I, I think they they win this game against the Saints. I agree. I, I think three point you know home field I guess advantage, but in this context, it's a little bit hard to tell how much home field is an advantage. And the Packers look so much stronger than the Saints last weekend. I think I'm going to ride the hot hand here. I'm going to agree with you. Take the Packers. Okay, number two, our first college football game. We're looking for some reasonably big matchups here. So we've got two teams in the top 25, although a little bit watered down this year because we don't have Big Ten teams in there yet, Pac-12 teams eventually perhaps. But we've got number 23, Kentucky, at number eight, Auburn. Auburn, seven-and-a-half-point favorite. What do you think, Dave? I'll go with Auburn. I just uh, I have to think that to be at number eight, there are a lot of voters uh, who think that they've got a, a good chance to challenge the Alabamas of the world. So at home, they, they take this and, and win by more than seven and a half points. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's going to be an Auburn blowout here, actually. So um, I'm, not, I'm not buying. The second tier SEC teams are usually on, on the road, a disaster. They, they, can, they can nick a win here or two at home, but on the road, they tend to do very poorly. So I think Auburn will probably win this by at least two touchdowns. Number three, NBA. We've got Miami at Boston-ish in the bubble. Game five, Boston three-point favorite, desperate for a win, down three games to one against Miami, the surprise team of the NBA playoffs. Well, maybe Denver is too. I don't know. We've got, it's certainly not gone according to form, I think it's fair to say. So what do you think? Can the Celtics rally at least for one night and keep the series alive? Yeah, I, I would have thought that that they they could. I, I listened to the the last game though, and and they're just so out of whack right now. And I think it's just because Miami just plays a great team defense. Uh, they are not really great on offense, but they find a way uh, to to get the basket when they need it. I I just think they've uh, proven in this series to be a better team, even though Boston, as many people note, have more individual talent. So I'm going to go with Miami finishing off the series. Uh, uh, Friday evening. I'm going the opposite direction on this one. I think Boston will get the win. I wish they didn't have to give you three points, but I, I think they win this game. I think Jason Tatum's going to be back. He's not happy with his zero points in the first half of the last game. So I think he comes out firing, and I think that might be just enough to get Boston at least one more game in this series before Miami is able to wrap it up. Yeah, you think Miami will win the series, though, correct? I think Miami probably wins the series, but I think Boston's got at least one more big game in them. Number four, NHL Stanley Cup Finals Game 4 tonight. We've got Tampa Bay at Dallas in Toronto. Lightning leading two games to one, favored to win Game 4. Of course, this was your pick way back when. Dallas was my surprise pick, so we're matched up against each other here in the finals. We did pretty well in that regard. What do you think? Tampa Bay goes 3-1, or does Dallas even it up? 
I think Tampa Bay uh, wins uh, and then uh, goes on to win in five. So I think that's the way that most Stanley Cups go. You, you get the lead. It's hard to come back uh, after, when you're down. So I'm going lightning all the way uh, to uh, Stanley Cup uh, glory. All right. Well, yeah, you're on the record for that two months ago now. So I'm going to stick with Dallas. Uh, they've been a surprise team. They've, they've managed to, despite the fact that their roster is probably not as strong as Tampa Bay, uh, make it all the way to the final. And why not? Things get crazy sometimes in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And so I think they can get at least get a second win, even it up, and we'll see where it goes from there. One more to go. Major League Baseball. We have the final National League playoff spots. American League, basically, it's all set up. We got eight teams. The order is, is in flux, but we know pretty much which eight teams we're talking about. Nationally, you got four teams that have clinched going into this last weekend. But there's four spots available, technically eight teams, but really six teams that have a chance. So what I'm going to ask you to do, Dave, is tell me, of these six teams, which four get in? And I'm giving a little bit of help here. I'm giving to them an order of their current record. So the highest probability of them getting in based on their record at present first and the lowest probability at the end. So here's what we got. We got St. Louis, Miami, Cincinnati, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Milwaukee. So I definitely take the Cardinals. I think they're playing the Brewers this weekend. I, and I think at home. So I, I would, uh, I slot them in Miami. I'm going to um, not include them in my group. They have to go up, I think, and play the Yankees. So I say that's the surprise. They're second uh, in order right now, but they don't make it in. Uh, and instead I'm going to put uh, the, the Reds, uh, the Giants, uh, and this will please some of our um, friends in New Jersey and Philadelphia the Phillies in those four spots. Yeah, it'll be amazing if, if St. Louis and Miami both make it, given the challenges they had with code at the beginning of the season, right, where St. Louis didn't play for 16 consecutive days and they've had to make up all those games with double headers, and they're yet somehow still in, in playoff position. It's really remarkable. Miami didn't have quite as many days off, but still a long stretch and a lot of double headers to make up for it. I'm going to take St. Louis and Miami. I think – Cincinnati makes, I think the Phillies get ahead of San Francisco. So I think San Francisco falls out. I agree with you. Milwaukee is not going to make it. St. Louis, Miami, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, my four. All right, we got one last bonus pick. Got to close it off with politics. We know that's what our listeners like. We've got next week's debate. How many million viewers does that debate get? Well, I did my research here, and I think that the most watched presidential debate, and this comes as no surprise, was the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016 that, that had 84 million viewers. So I'm going to say that this debate next Tuesday reaches the 100 million viewer mark. I mean, wow. wouldn't that be remarkable? Uh, 100 million views. <laughs> I just think there's so much going on, and there's just, I, I think, you know, you, you love or hate Trump you know that he's a showman, right? And you're going to love to see him fall on his face or do something different. So he's, he's definitely going to bring the Nielsen ratings on Tuesday. And, and I say uh, 100 million. 100 million. That's, that's wow. That would be something. I, I don't think it's going to be quite Super Bowl level. I'm, I'm going to say 86. I think it'll just barely beat out last time. There is a lot of interest, but... I wonder if some people are a little bit weary of the show. So I, I think 86 million would still be amazing. And of course, it'll raise the stakes, right? We've given them a clue into how they're going to be graded by us. But really, a lot of people, that, that's a quarter of the American population. If they all watch that, and that's probably half the voting population. So a lot of people that'll be making judgments based upon what they see. And certainly a lot at stake for both candidates. So our over-under, Matt, is 93 million. Uh, over 93, I right. win. Under okay. 93, you win. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. I'll take that. Very good. Well, thanks again for listening. As always, very glad to have your support of the show. We encourage you to review the show and subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Take care. Look forward to talking to you again next week.